welcome to the Professional Practice Podcast, looking at a range of issues uh, around architecture and the construction industry. My name is Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London, and these podcasts are reasonably relaxed conversations with some leading architects, designers and policymakers to explore firsthand some of the important issues uh, concerning the practice of architecture in a, in a broader sense. So today we're delighted to have John McRae, Director at Orms in Central London, in his fabulous uh, buzzy office. You can probably hear some uh, architecty things happening in the background uh, off Old Street. And we're going to talk about why his company changed its management structure a few years ago, um, and the fact that you, John, are a trustee. Yes. Is it clear? Um, but before we get into that, we'll have a little bit of kind of personal background and a brief chat about you. So first of all, can you... Introduce yourself, introduce your company, say what you, you do. No, no problem. Um, so as Austin mentioned, my name is John McRae. I'm a director and trustee of Orms. Uh, we're an architectural practice based in London. Um, there's 75 of us um, at the moment, and we're about to enter into our 35th year of practice. And the practice was founded by Oliver Richards, who's still very much part of the practice itself. Um, we do... A lot of work across many different sectors. So we do office buildings, we do residential, we're working on some hotels and also some music venues at the moment. So we're doing quite a major scheme at the bottom of Centre Point in central London, which is about adding you know, music venues back into central London because there's been quite a dearth, as you as you know, or change in that, that area. So it's a very wide you know, breadth of work that we have, but oh, mainly in London. So you're working with the Nighttime Economy Group, the Tsar, the Night Tsar? That's right. Um, prior to um, Amy, is it Amy LeMay? Amy LeMay, yeah. Yeah. Uh, prior to her you know, joining the GLA, they had set up, uh, through Paul Broadhurst, a whole um, the department looking at the Nighttime Economy, and they got involved in our scheme. And they also, they had written a report with the Music Venues Trust about the loss of music venues across London. So our scheme got very much tied into that. In fact, we updated our scheme um, after planning to add a grassroots music venue, which is one of the key things that have been lost across London. So that's been a really interesting thing. And then when Amy was appointed, one of the first sites she visited was actually our one at St Giles to see how the nighttime economy um, was being reinvigorated in in London. All right, cool. Interesting. Uh, We don't have much time to go there. Uh, And uh, for the listeners, we're having this conversation on a very bright... Uh, afternoon rather than three o'clock in the morning over a pint. Um, so just in terms of your background, John, 21 years ago apparently I gather you joined the company, is that right? That, that's right. So you know, prior, prior to becoming a, an architect, what, what did I do? Um, when I left school I had no idea what I wanted to do, you know, what I wanted to be, so I was never one of those, I've always wanted to be an architect. And it was actually my English teacher who uh, said to me, I can't see you in overalls in the oil industry in Scotland. Why don't you go and visit my friend who has an architectural practice in Aberdeen? Um, so I saw you in a bow tie. Is, <laughs> yeah, she saw me in a bow tie, that's right. <laughs> um, and so I went off to see uh, her friend who was a partner of an architectural practice. And... At that uh, interview, he actually bought four of my oil pastel paintings for me at 200 quid each, which was quite a good a good start at 17. And I, I actually trained as an architectural technician for two and a half years. And the other partner at that business, um, within about a year and a half of starting, basically said to me, 
you're going to get bored doing this. Get off to university and do the, do the proper course. Um, so I've been very fortunate that people have uh, helped guide me in the right direction. And then after doing university, I came to, well, I came to London for my part one. And I then returned to London the post doing my part two. And so, as Austin mentioned, I've been at the practice. It says now, I'm now moved into my 22nd year. So I've, I've literally gone from print and tea boy to <laughs> director and trustee. And he hasn't aged at all, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Um, so uh, what's the tips then for making it up the corporate ladder? Um, I think the, the thing that stood me in good stead was being flexible, being ambitious, being energetic and not turning down opportunities. Now, people need to understand that door schedules do lead to toilets and toilets do lead to facades and facades will lead to buildings and before you know it, you might own the business. <laughs> it's, I, think, I think that's one of the key things. I think I didn't come into practice thinking I, am the, I, I want to design a building from the outset and I don't want to do this and I don't want to do that. I embraced it. I put myself forward Probably, I think I was in my late 20s, I put myself forward as a project architect for one of the biggest buildings the practice has ever done uh, back in 2000. And I was fortunate to get it because nobody else put their name forward for it. That's three years after joining the company. Yeah, not long after joining the company. I, I'd sort of shown I know, what I could you know, do and it, it was about a £35 million new build and I, sort of, I just said to them, guys, I, I want to run it. I'll run it. And I almost run myself into the ground but that's what I wanted you know, to do. So did you um, specialise? I mean, you're kind of saying, are you saying you're jack of all trades or, we, or did you actually have a special... Because the last time, well, the first time we met actually, was on the Cardiff Cancer That's Centre, right. which is probably yeah. 10 years ago or something. Yeah. Uh, and so that was a very specialised brief, very specialised uh, building, brilliant building if you haven't seen it. Um, so did you, were you jack of all trades or did you have a specialism that you were interested in? Um, I would say in terms of you know, how the world of architecture works, um, I'm probably... Uh, I have the ability to go from design in, and into detail, so I'm not... I'm not the sort of, uh, I only do design and you know, I pass it on. What I really enjoy is you know, being in the first meeting, designing, being in the contractor meetings through to you know, showing you know, people around and explaining buildings. So I, I definitely say that I'm more of an all-rounder and I'm not, I, I like detail. I like to you know, speak about construction because I think the whole process is what an architect is about. I don't see just design architects, I don't just see detail architects. I think an architect should understand and should appreciate all aspects of what they're doing. Well, I kind of agree, but so why is it that um, if you were to take the caricature of an architect, or if you were to ask architects, they wouldn't necessarily come up with that answer? The idea that you, know, you said architecture is all about start to finish, whereas in many respects many people think of it as a design Discipline. Well, I think what, what I've seen you know, in, in my time, and I would say over probably the last 30 years, is that the role of the architect has definitely changed. You know, as you know, deregulation happened, you know, as you know, Thatcher's view on you know, how things should be procured and how we should deliver things changed, 
I think that has, to my mind, been completely consumed into how we see buildings. Um, if you look at now the relationship between client and contractor, in, in many ways, is sometimes seen more important than client and architect. And I think that's where you see value is now about financial value, risk. No, there are priorities over uh, what is being delivered. And I think what that leads to is that you know, design is seen as that you know, nice fluffy thing that just adds risk and may affect the investment in the wrong hands. I'm not saying that everybody is like this, but I think no, no, but you, do you think general. there's opportunities in that shift? I mean, you know, from the kind of the fancy architect who determined, you know, project managed the entire thing all the way through to what you're kind of describing, maybe a design and build type world where the architect may be slightly marginalised, not even novated occasionally. So um, we all look at that historically as, say, isn't that terrible how architects have been displaced? But do you think that there's possibilities and different opportunities uh, within that process for architecture? Well, I think what, what we found uh, over certainly the last 10 or 15 years that, that your, our relationships with clients and contractors and the people within those businesses is absolutely key. Um, and I think that this is where determination of an architect is, is really needed. And I think that is the opportunity. I think too, too many step away from it. Because I think by very nature, architects don't like being confrontational or necessarily being challenged you know, at times. And I think the process that we find ourselves in is that it's about rolling your sleeves up and really getting in amongst it. You know, to be proud of the building at the end. It's very easy to say, oh, the contractor dumbed it down, design and build dumbed it down. But you, if you're in the middle of it, you're there day in, day out, ensuring that doesn't happen. And it can be done. Okay, okay. That's uh, another episode for a later <laughs> date. Um, so here you are as the director of OMS, uh, comfortably off uh, with your beautiful uh, suntan. Uh, and yet a few years ago, you and the other directors decided to swap the company model. You decided to move into this employee ownership company framework. So what was the thinking behind that? Well, the thinking behind it was, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the, the practice is now entering its 35th year, and I've been here you know, just over 20 of those. And it's been interesting to watch how our business, but also our peers, has been, you know, it's been about almost you know, solely about the individuals that lead those practices. And I think what we, we recognised back in 2012, um, we... Oliver and I bought out one of our fellow directors and I think in doing that it, it gave us a pause to sort of reflect on who we are or who we were as a business and what we wanted to be as a business and I think in, that, in those discussions when we rebranded from the initials ORMS to ORMS what came about in that process was there was a, an understanding that we wanted to be more collaborative as a group we were recognising through our discussions it was about people, not just you know, Oliver and I. It was actually about the team around us all the way through the studio. And I think when we reflected on you know, how design was being done in the practice, it was being done as a series of individuals, not as, as groups and exchanging knowledge and sharing knowledge. And so part of our rebrand uh, six years ago was to say it's actually about the collective, not about the individuals. And so we, we saw strength in 
the collective. That's where we started. And what happened was when we rebranded to, to Orms, when you look at our logo, the O is a perfect circle, which is to represent you know, the, collect, the collective. And all of the, uh, the R, the M and the S, all of the curves are perfect circles in proportion to you know, the main circle. So to us, it was really important about the group, not just you know, Oliver and myself. So when we did that, our work, we believe, has improved our... Uh, profile has improved the, because we are, we're, we're spreading it throughout the, the practice and our shift to the studio that, all, uh, that Austin mentioned which was four years ago was a representation of it now we're sat in a, in a studio which has many more display walls it has work up uh, people can see what each other is up to we're sat in a meeting room at the moment everybody can see what's happening in the meeting room there are no places to hide it's yeah but look look that's, there's open plan offices and there's employee ownership trusts. So just for the record, I'll, let me, for those who don't know, and you can correct me, John, if I'm not explaining this well enough for you. So it's a very throwaway comment that employee ownership is where all the employees have, quotes, significant and meaningful stake in a business. And we can talk about what that really means yeah. in a moment. But in, in general terms, it means the employees must have a financial stake in the business by owning shares, for example. Uh, and a say in how the business is run. So again, it's not just the, the appearances, it's, it's really the structure. And it's quite a dramatic shift from maybe the corporate framework that we might think of old of an architecture company and maybe what you were doing before. And it was in 2012, so the, as you say, six years ago, the Nuttall Report came out, which talked about recommending that companies take this course of action in order to improve the uh, productivity in some ways and the benefits to the employees, but also to the, to the employer themselves. So... Again, do you want to just explain yeah. whether there has been tangible, not just in terms of friendliness and all that, which is all very well and good, but has your bottom line improved? Has your, you know, is there a, is there a, is there a, something you can uh, pin down on what the benefits have been on that? Right. So I think just just to be clear, when we rebranded, we hadn't changed to an EOT at that point. Um, we'd become aware of um, the employee ownership trust. So. And EOT, as its, you know, its acronym is, yeah. hasn't been around that long. Uh-huh. Prior to that, there was what was called an Employee Benefit Trust. And there are slight differences you know, between them. And one of the big things was that an Employee Benefit Trust was, in some circumstances, when we went to, to meet some of our contemporaries, uh, was often known as the Director's Benefit Trust, i.e. because the employees didn't actually have as much a say as they should have. So we have now been an EOT coming up for, no, we're, in, we're in our first year, but it's been in planning for the last three. Okay. And no, the, the reason uh, that this has come up is there's a number of reasons. One is the rebrand. Obviously, Oliver, no, who started the practice no, 35 years ago, at some point will decide to have a, a different role within the business. What was very clear was that selling shares within a business and we were a, you know, a limited company you know, how do you grow a business, how do you evolve a business and we had tried bringing in people and we had tried the should we sell equity but what again became very clear is that the culture we had created within the practice you can't just drop people into it and expect it to, to work 
So what became very clear to us was that we needed to grow the people from within the business. And so what that means is that you know, you're not then wanting to ask them for significant amounts of money to buy into the business. So the way that uh, we thought, that, you know, which takes it out of just being about money and it's actually about the people, was to set up the Employee Ownership Trust. So the EOT sets up an infrastructure for the longer term. So it might be for the next 35 years, we have no idea. But the idea was that it allows the practice to evolve and it's not dependent on how deep your pockets are. What it then, then means is that the day-to-day -day running of the business doesn't really change. So there are still a, there's still a board of directors, there's still associate directors, there's still associates. The big change is that there are trustees. So we actually have three trustees. There's myself, there's an employee who was elected by her fellow employees, and there has to be a third party that is external to the business. So you, you can have as many as you want, but you have to have a minimum of three. And having spoken to some other practices that had seven and nine, Oliver and I concluded, well, actually three is about as good a number as, as you need. And you have to run any major decisions past the trustees to get their buy-in. Because the practice needs to be run for the benefit of all employees. So just to, be, to clear up one thing that is slightly different to what you said, Austin, is what happens is that the majority share of the business is owned in trust on behalf of the employees. So each employee doesn't have a share certificate per se, but they have the benefits and the rights of the inputting into the business. So what happens is that we have a, a senior management team and we have trustees. Then alongside the trustees, we've actually got our employee council. And our employee council is a group of seven, again, that were elected um, by the, their employees. And they report into the trustees. So it can be anything from what's the budgets for the year, what's the social budget, to no, do they think we should be pitching at other sectors of work? And that feeds into the trustees, and the trustees are looking at how the business is being run and how the employees are feeling about the business. So their role is to challenge it. You know, yeah, well, I mean, because, well, I've heard you talking about it longer than, than a, three years, I thought, so maybe I, maybe I was mistaken, but uh, that's, that's interesting, and it's good to see that the idea is less about maybe kind of a, a shareholder certificates than engagement in the office and participatory uh, democracy in some respects. So it does sound a bit kind of hippie do-gooder, doesn't it? Uh, so at the moment, you're kind of saying to me that you haven't really yet been doing it long enough to get this evidential analysis about maybe what the bottom line benefits of it are. Um, but what do the employees get out of it? Well, there's, I think there's, a, there's quite a few sort of major things. Um, what it, it's done, and I'm not suggesting that we were uh, closed in the way that we you know, share information in the business, but I think there is a perception that the business is more transparent. You know, we share um, how every year we have an away day to set aspirations for the next year, but also the next five years. We set our vision 
we we share that vision now with the uh, with the council and all employees. Um, now we we've been sharing all of the figures. So very quickly interrupt. So we share with the employees. That means the directors will have a vision. For example, you then go through the council, and that then gets done spread out to the employees and there's yeah. a conversation that, on that, that level. That's right. What about disagreement with direction? I mean, maybe you haven't come across this, but... Um, the, I, I don't think there's been no violent disagreement no, yet, and that, that may come. But what we've uh, said is that the employee council is their, their first stop. And then if there are issues that employee council want to, you know, to raise, that can be done through the senior management team on a day-to-day basis. Or if they think that they're not being listened to, they've got the trustees to say, no, trustees, we're not happy about X, Y, and Z. But I think at the moment, I think the key thing that's coming through is that the openness and sharing of all information is really key. I think the second thing that they are, they are going to see is that because the, the ownership structure is different, the pot to share is larger. So rather than, you know, like I had to do, which was invest a significant amount of money and then you know, to buy a share of business and then see some rewards, the idea is that you can be rewarded more immediately for the input that you have given. And I think that was a key thing because you no know, salaries, living in London is, is a real challenge. So the, the, the other benefit was to put more money into their pockets, not just for long service, but for the input that you've given. So that's actual more money in actual pockets rather than held in trust by one of the three. Correct, correct. That's correct. So in one of the, the government incentives is, um, I'm not sure if this figure is ex- exactly right to the pound, but it's about £3,800 is tax-free of whatever profit share there is given. So there's a benefit that you've got a share of a larger pot. There's then your share is then tax-free up to £3,800, which, especially in the younger members of the team, that is a significant amount of money. And is there a corporate tax rebid on this as well? Uh, Not that I'm I'm aware of. Capital gains, capital gains maybe. No, there's not a a capital gains. No? No, No, there's not. So so there's a benefit in in doing that. I think the key thing that we've seen, even in the, the short time that we've had it, is that there is definitely more of a sense of belonging. There's a sense that they are inputting more into something that they are part of. Um, and again, you can say, well, that's, that's just a perception thing. Well, actually, perception and reality, as we know, <laughs> can be very, very different things. So yeah. whatever you think might be, be perceived, unless it is truly being felt by the people on the, on the ground, it doesn't matter. So we, we are seeing that and we're feeling it and sensing it. Right, okay. Well, I mean, as an aside, um, not to comment on your office, but what's, what's the situation in London at the moment? This is mid-2018. Is there a, a, a movement amongst staff, people? Is it in a buyer's market or a seller's market in terms of architectural offices? Um, I would say that there's a bit of a mixed message at the moment. Um, the we are still recruiting as a practice, but it's about a 50-50 split. There are practices, it tends to be the larger practices are reducing headcount. The medium practices that we fit into, there's a number of us still no recruiting. And I think that's just really where the market is at the moment. The, the, the large schemes are just, they're not there. 
But if you look at some of our competitors, um, there are now a few practices that have just shifted, or I know of more that are considering this, this shift into an EOT. And I think that it's interesting because when people now come for interview and we can explain the ownership, it can be a differentiator between you know, us and another practice. Okay. So not to um, be overly technical about it, um, but is there a, I think developing the idea of staff happiness, well-being, in order to encourage retention, that's all, that's all very well and good. Is there any pressure on staff to remain? I mean, do you know what I mean? Would they, if, they, if they leave, do they lose financial gain, financial benefit? Well, depending on you know, when they left. Can they cash so, in their shares is what I'm So, thinking. yeah, when you say cash in their shares, you know, the, the, the profit share for that year will be done you know, on the basis of how long you were here for right. that year. So of. yeah, percentage of whatever you were um, that, that you were you know, allowed to allowed to have, okay. and I think all, to, just to clear up one thing, when you become an employee of Orms, um, you automatically become part of the EOT, so, so you don't get a share certificate, but you automatically become part of that. But you have to be within the business, and it's, this is an EOT rule: you have to be within a business for at least one year in order to have that tax-free benefit and profit share. Right. That's that's just part of how these EOTs have been been set up. Okay. So are there any are there fluctuations within the marketplace? I mean, I don't mean just like losing jobs. I mean, are there financial fluctuations that affect the way this works, the bank rate or anything like that? Um, there isn't. I think the 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 only major thing that sort of you know affects it is the you know how much work we've got. I thought you were gonna say Brexit then for a minute. No. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> says Brexit knows? is that who, who, who knows what Brexit may or may or may not you know, serve us. But no, it's it's really about um we've been quite conservative with our projections um in and around the EOT and the information we've shared with with the rest of the practice has been on a a pretty conservative basis no, in terms of turnover and our profitability and and that is intentionally so uh, because you know, the more that we turn over and this and the more that we make the more that we've got to share so I think just aligning people's expectations that you know, it's not necessarily going to sort of double our turnover and our profitability but I think people have bought into if I do put in more work I will see reward and one of the things that we have kept back is that there's a certain percentage of profit share that we've kept back, which will be about uh, a special prize. Now, whether that is someone's contribution, extraordinary contribution to the practice, we can say, yes, Austin, you had share X. By the way, we want to give you another X on top of that to recognize the input that you have personally given to the practice. But, I mean, you could do that. Anyway, you, you uh, well, in theory, you could, but um, you wouldn't have you know, the tax-free benefit of doing that. Right. And also, you know, we're talking about you no know, fairly chunky sums of money. Okay. So it's not you no know, a couple of hundred quid. It's potentially thousands of pounds. Yeah. Yeah. No. So the the, the tax relief bit is the hook. Am I right? Well, I think it's one of the hooks. 
I think it's one of the things. But I think it's also, there's a percentage of quite a significantly larger pot. No, because, I mean, it's very interesting. And it's, it's uh, you know, when I was thinking about it earlier, it seemed to me like a liberal dream of trade union engagement in an office management practice. I mean, like Nissan car factory, where the bosses dress the same as the workers. Um, and everybody works and is more productive, partly because they are in some kind of harmonious whole. Um, so that idea of rather than sort of getting rid of the tensions that you might have existing between employer and employee, battling for pay rises and better conditions and what have you, this somehow gives it a much more beer and sandwiches, consultative, yeah. discursive yeah. element to it. It's just, tensions might still be there, but there's a mechanism to try and diffuse or resolve yeah those and, and, I, and I think what we've also found is and uh, we've we've been you know, testing it out is that uh, some of the decisions we make as a board we've actually deferred it to the the council to get their opinion you no know, so it's not just the board that's making all the decisions and telling people it's sometimes we'll have a debate as a board and say well I'm not quite sure what we should do well why don't we get the opinion you know, of the the EOT council because you no know, things such as setting budgets. You know, at the beginning of the year, you set budgets from everything from you no know, marketing all the way through down to you know we have lunches every two weeks and Friday drinks and things like that and saying, well, what budget, you know, does the do the employees think is right? How should we spend that budget? If you think it should be more, that's fine. But right, where do you think we should reduce in other budgets? So that, that debate and dialogue is, is now opened up on a much more regular basis. So is this a kind of a fair-weather corporate strategy? Do you know what I mean? It, it, I mean, fingers crossed, touch wood, we don't go through this very often or soon. But were there to be a downturn or recession, I mean, would you enter into a discursive conversation about maybe who should be laid off? It depend, well, depends on numbers you know, of, of redundancies, but that, that is when it's going to be quite, quite interesting. So even for our employee who's on the, who is a trustee, I think that's going to be an interesting challenge for her if that does occur, because uh, what will have to happen is that the board will make recommendations, but it needs to get trustee agreement. And the trustees may then choose to go to the council so I think what will happen is it will start to open people's eyes to some of the reality, the harsh reality of running a business. So as you say, yes, we're probably in fair weather at the moment, but as we've already said to them, we know as good as eggs are eggs, there will be some choppy water at some point. And that's going to be the real test. But I think this is where you know, people have said to us, being open and being sharing about information is actually really important. And I think what we recognised was that there is a reality to this, but I think they, they know, yes, there will be hard decisions to be made, but we've been through them before. It's not as easy <laughs> as you think it's going to be. So it's is that, I mean, there's a, there's a similarity, tell me if I'm wrong, but uh, local authorities and their creaking budgets uh, have recently gone through this phase where the councillors unable to pay for lots of civic um, public um, amenities have then opened the budget up to the public and said, right, you decide 
whether we close the library or whether we close the swimming pool, where we make our financial cuts. And in some ways, you could say that's what a wonderful democratic open-ended conversation. On the other hand, you could say that's an evasion of the local authority councillors making big decisions on behalf of other people and maybe avoiding blame themselves. So that's a terrible analogy, but do you see so any, that, anything in so that? So that's, that's not... Um that's that's not how we are we are seeing in the in the UOT. Um, I think what is very clear, and you know, the guys in the office know is clear, is that the practice still has to have direction. It still has to be run by a board. And what we've said to them is, where there are difficult decisions, we will take their opinion and their comment, but we will ultimately be making those decisions. Some of which will need to be run by trustees. And yes, we will need their buy-in to certain decisions, but we've made it very clear the board will run the business. So it's you know, we are still ultimately responsible for the running of the, the business. So as a director, um, you know, I have a responsibility, as does Oliver, Richard and Colin. But as a trustee, I have the, the sort of thinking you know, with the employee hat on as well. So it's quite, a, it's quite an interesting... No, sort of bridge between the two because you know, you're running a business day to day but then you're thinking well actually is, is that the right decision for the benefit of the, you know, the, the wider group and if you, I mean is there a term period for being a trustee or if you wanted to step down and hand it over how, what's yeah, the process there's a, there, there's a minimum period that we've, we've, we've set in, in our uh, into our um, articles and um, I, I will be one for a minimum of five years just to help with the transition you know, into the new, the new process. Mm-hmm. Um, our external person you know, is, is at least 12, 12 months you know, and hopefully he will carry on for a bit longer. But the idea will be that um, an employee, again, is for a minimum period and we will ask them to either be you know, re-elected so in many ways, if people are not happy with their trustee, they could decide that they would, might want that to be changed. Okay. I think one of the important things to say is when we, we chose an external trustee that knows the construction industry, he used to be a partner of a central London QS firm, QS and PM firm, who worked a lot with architects. So we thought it would be really good to have somebody that understands construction and design. He's now moved out of that practice into development. So he's got a good commercial mind, but he also has got contacts in a number of practices. So he's able to bring in, oh, have you thought about this? Have you done that? Why are you doing it this way? So it's been a good challenge. Because so the, the, there's, an, there's a financial incentive for the external trustees as well. No, they, they are employed as a trustee but don't share in the benefit oh, of okay. it right. yeah, they, they don't, they don't, there's no there's not a financial incentive right. it's right. a it's a salaried salaried role okay okay uh, so look so is this applicable to all practices i mean you have to be a company rather than an individual sole practitioner to do this yes um well, i don't know the answer sole, sole practitioner doesn't make any sense does it uh, yeah, no, well, you, you would have to yourself have, in a yeah, community. <laughs> I think it might be a minimum of five, I think, that you need. But no, I, I, well, that I would be one hell of a bureaucratic nonsense <laughs> to, if you weren't, if you weren't <laughs> yeah. big enough. Uh, but, but, but do you recommend this? 
or do you think that there are places, you know, because there are still those companies who are going to still be the grandiose figureheads leading the company? I know, I know of some other practices who are, you know, some of the younger practices who are very much, I'm keeping the name, I'm the figurehead, and, and which, no, I fully respect. You know, yes, our practice has figureheads, but we see it more as a, the, the, this, this group thing. In many ways, we're probably ahead of that curve slightly because we've been through, do we you know, sell shares? Do we bring people in? We've been through a couple of iterations of that, and this is our conclusion. Um, is it for every practice? I think your DNA needs to embrace the principles of it. I think you could choose to do it as lip service, but that's not really why you know, a practice should do it. I think what we have found when we um, went on this journey, outside architectural practices, many businesses see it as a way of creating a collective and being more open and being more transparent. I think generally as, as architects, you tend to be more interactive and collaborative, slightly more naturally. So it seems like more of a natural fit. If you look at some of the practices that have become it, you, from the outside looking in, you think, yes, you could see how that, that fit works. So from Bennett's Associates, HMM have just done it. I think Assail have done it. So there's a few practices that you would look at and think, right, yes, I can see that happening. Um, is it for everybody? I, I don't. I don't know. I don't. Well, on that beautifully vague note, <laughs> I have to bring the authoritarian hand, authoritarian hand of uh, closure down on this talk. I'm afraid time's up. Uh, who'd have thought employee ownership trusts could be that interesting? But that's down to John McRae of Orms. Thank you very much. My name's Austin Williams. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for the Professional Practice Podcast. <laughs>